Sí, cosas que yo sé ahora es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the D-Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with historian Daisy Ocampo. We'll speak about the current protest movements that include the removal of Confederate statutes, as well as figures such as Christopher Columbus and Junipero Serra. Before we begin our conversation, Daisy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Daisy Ocampo. I am a assistant professor at Cal State San Bernardino, um, and my field is within public history. Um, public history looks at uh, numerous different cultural institutions, such as museums, uh, archives, public preservation, historic preservation, and, um, you know, within that field of preservation, um, you know, that really can look at public memory, looks at monuments um, and public spaces and um, how public memory is created. Daisy, uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the current movement to bring down monuments, statutes that many communities feel are inappropriate, mm -hmm. maybe inaccurate, offensive. There's a lot of ways of, of I guess, describing the, the different communities. So I don't want to take their voice uh, in describing it, but I, as an observer, I feel that there's a conversation where communities are challenging public monuments that we take for granted in our national parks, in our civic spaces, such as mm -hmm. City Hall, right. mm -hmm. and saying, I don't want them right. here. They're taking it upon themselves to take them down, right. uh, deface them, and try and create a different space that does not include, uh, I guess, historical figures that are being challenged in the narrative so that, for example, if uh, Andrew Jackson is being uh, challenged in his presentation as a, as a hero. Right. Communities are now saying, can we talk about him being very hostile against Native communities? And that's right. an understatement. In fact, right. Andrew Jackson was systematically uh, ran on a campaign to remove Native people from what was this expansion of the United States. So people called him the Indian killer. <laughs> and I don't think that's even like an exaggeration I think that is pretty much well documented right. and as we see the this movement I'm hoping that you can give us your thoughts as a historian what are your thoughts on what's happening well I think um, when I look at um, when I approach public monuments it's really looking at public monuments as state statements of power it's about who has the power of representation, of being able to fundraise, uh, you know, who have the financial capacities uh, to erect monuments. And ultimately, they're making decisions about 
what histories are being remembered, but also what histories are being suppressed and, you know, consequently uh, erased. And so for so long, we've looked at these monuments as these permanent features, as you mentioned, of, you know, public spaces, whether they're parks, you know, in front of courthouses and uh, city halls and whatnot. And really, I think what's happening right now is there, I mean, there's there's an intersection of a lot of things happening right now, right? With the murder of George Floyd, there's the pandemic. But I think if we look at, you know, where this momentum came from, it didn't just happen now because of the murder of uh, Mr. George Floyd or the pandemic. I think if we look at... I don't know if it was 2015 or 2017 in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, right, uh, where you have pretty much these neo-Nazis, white supremacists are coming out to protest the coming down of, who was it, General Lee, a Confederate uh, general in, in Virginia. And so, you know, what that caused is now you have these counter-protests who wanted these monuments to come down and if I'm not mistaken, I think a couple of counter-protesters, um, you know, were, were killed during that time. And so we're really looking at a period where there has been this ongoing momentum to contest history, um, that it's not this crystallized moment, but it is being contested. Uh, you have people that are now saying, as you mentioned, uh, these generals, these figures, this historical event, they don't represent my history and as a matter of fact who you have up there you know represent so much pain uh so much violence and erasure within my community my family and my history so i think ultimately what we're seeing are just contested uh, public spaces and uh you know really ready to rewrite that that narrative so that the national narrative of a violence no longer applies so we no longer want to look up and see um, reminders of colonial histories the reference to virginia you are accurate in that it has to do with the the confederate army the general the ways that i think this conversation has an overall discussion in terms of what you mentioned that there's a contestation on public spaces and the reminders of the past, right. how we work them. But they are also situated within different communities and their respective histories. Mm -hmm. So that the Southern communities are, are thinking about the Civil War and mm -hmm. the Confederate Army, uh, the Confederate flag. Right. And these generals that are in these towns, mm -hmm. and what does it represent to the United States to have a record of someone that challenged the United States as a union in this period of the Civil War, mm -hmm. and to celebrate their defiance? So, so part of it is that awkward understanding of like what history are we celebrating? Mm -hmm. How does it play into national discourse, and also? that same energy of contesting monuments as history makers or history reminders in places that are not necessarily tied to the South or they're not even tied to the nation state. So as reference, Christopher Columbus is a figure that is not tied to the United States at all. I mean, we do reference 
this person a lot, but he's global. He's global. He's actually pre-United States. He never sat foot in the United States. It doesn't make a lot of sense why Christopher Columbus is in the United States. But what I'm trying to get at is that the to challenge Christopher Columbus is to be in that same uh, spirit of challenging monuments and what they represent as these statues. Because some people will argue these statues are like textbooks. Mm -hmm. You don't have to agree with them but they should exist. And that's where I think the conversation for me uh, gets more nuanced. And then then even thinking about the religious concept, you know, for example, in Los Angeles, the statue of Junipero Serra was taken down. Mm -hmm. That's not a national figure. Mm -hmm. That's a religious figure. And that is a little bit of that nuance, but I, I do feel that I understand how there's a sameness in that spirit of challenging how we will remember, how we will tell our story, and even the significance of having statues that you in encounter. So how do you express, or maybe is there a divide that must be put forward when talking about this movement that we're seeing where there are political figures, Mm -hmm. like military figures but there's religious figures that are all being put in the same uh, movement of challenging monuments and the display of I think when we look at public monuments in whatever capacity it's past monuments right it can be a flag as you mentioned it can be a plaque it could be a bench it, it's it's not just about the the material representation it's more so the symbolic representation so as you mentioned when we look at christopher columbus it, it's not even about his specificity right it's about what he symbolized and the effect it had and consequently um you know what happened after um you know colonization so when i look at you know christopher columbus we're talking about race relations with native communities. We are looking at uh, colonization. We are looking at scalping. We're looking at some really um, violent episodes of pretty much genocide, which is fundamental to the establishment of the nation states that we have today. And no one can deny that piece, right? So it's Christopher... Columbus is fundamental, symbolically speaking, to United States and really to any country because that colonization was fundamental to the countries that we have today. And I think even when we look at um, Junipero Serra, it's really interesting because Junipero Serra, uh, he's so significant in California history, right, with the mission system here in California. Um, so much so that, you know, um, I believe you uh, referenced earlier uh, the legacy of Sarah here in Riverside. And even if we look at uh, the specifics of the Mission Inn um, and how it's really functioning, um, it's still trying to operate and keep alive this fabricated history of, of the California missions, right, as the foundation of the of the state of California. And that sounds, you know, there's all these missions across California as well as Baja. Um, but what's not, you know, what's erased there? So we're missing the indigenous histories 
uh, we're missing uh, indigenous negotiations uh, to that history, um, the, you know, indigenous labor during that time, uh, religious instruction, how it was instructed, whether it was done consensually or not, the impact that had in native communities to religious traditions. So that's all the history uh, that gets erased. And that's really the power of, of monuments and being able to tell that history is you get to choose what you leave in and then what you leave out. Um, so, um, you know, like I said, I guess to, to, um, to recap on that point is that it's not just about the, the material monuments, right? It's really about uh, the symbolic nature uh, and orientation of the monuments and they're often, you know, tied to race. And I think that's really important to be able to talk about race when we talk about monuments. Um, you know, I've always been fascinated with um, a lot of the scholarship of monuments uh, in Germany and how there's this new generation of youth that are saying, hey, I think this whole monuments and, uh, you know, dedicated plaque and dedicated bench, you know, to Holocaust survivors, as well as uh, the people that were all killed, that they think it's overkill. You know, they're just annoyed by it. It's everywhere. And, you know, because there's been a huge educational campaign on the Holocaust However, when you look at the educational component and you look at how much of it is talking about race relations, right, and the construction of race, uh, inferiority, superior races, you know, and that whole discourse is absent. So I think it's really important, at least for me and my work, to really integrate, um, uh, a, you know, racial discourse within public monuments and public history. When I see the movements to challenge the display of figures that are not universally appreciated, and I'm being very generous with my framing of that for comment, that for some people these are heroes and for others they're terrorists. Right. Mm -hmm. And I can see that there's even a general consensus that we are in right now so that the Confederate generals are being challenged as not having a place within present American discourse mm -hmm. so that their the Confederate flag is being said. This flag is from a group that challenged the very sovereignty of the United States of America as a nation so we shouldn't have tolerance for its celebration. Mm -hmm. and, and when I frame that, I go, yeah, and I can see how there's a lot of people that are not even from the South mm -hmm. that get on it and go, that makes perfect sense because why would we celebrate people that during the Civil War were enemies of the, of the emerging nation state? Yeah, the North. Uh -huh. That's literally, I guess, the best way we could think about them. They are literally enemies of the nation state because they're trying to break up the union mm -hmm. now that seems to be part of a movement to be much more critical of american history Correct. it does not necessarily have race discourse mm -hmm. how do we talk about what you just reviewed that there is a racialized component 
to this movement that we are seeing. We are seeing, for example, this movement to challenge Confederate, the Confederate flag because it is an anti-black symbol, a history that is anti-black, uh, pro-white supremacy, and it, it creates an investment by all of us that are committed to that so that many of us are going like, well, if you're anti-black, I don't think I want to have anything to do with you. If you are a white supremacist, I don't think I want to have anything to do with you. And we support the bringing down of these statues and these symbols, even though I'm in California. But what happens when things arrive in California and things get a little bit more controversial, such as the tearing down of Junipero Serra? I may not even be a Catholic, but in my vision, that's a religious figure, and I feel uncomfortable with someone tearing someone else's religious figure. So as, as I'm reviewing this, I hope I'm making sense that I'm trying to say when, when it changes in that context, we see less and less people being able to equally jump on in solidarity because they see things a little bit different so that when you see um, a cross, such as in the, here in Riverside, uh, recently the, the cross on Mount Rubidoux was written upon and we heard different voices. Yeah. Some people were really excited about it's about time. Others were offended, hurt, injured. Like, how can you do that to my religious iconography? Mm -hmm. I haven't gone to your religious iconography to deface it. Well, the conversation kind of gets more texture because we're saying things like, well, that cross is symbolic of the colonial experience that killed many of our communities. Mm -hmm. It's a hostile symbol. And at the same time, for others, it's a, a beautiful symbol, a symbol that inspires spirituality, faith, and just this romantic space of, of, of religion. And here we see a divide because it's not like the Southern Confederate flag anymore. We, we're not seeing people going, our government should not be supporting that. When it gets to the religious iconography, it actually jumps ship. It's no longer a government issue. Is there something that you as a historian and someone that looks at monuments, infrastructures, landscapes can bring to the conversation? Well, it, you know, especially with uh, the cross here in Mount Rubidoux uh, in, in the city of Riverside, you are correct in the sense that a lot of different voices uh, were at the table. Uh, however, I think the one voice that was missing are um, uh, the local indigenous communities, uh, and I put it S because there's there's many, um, but specifically the Kawia people, you know, were not part of that conversation. So the people that were reacting. Uh, to the cross were city officials, uh, religious, um, you know, uh, practicing uh, folks, as well as people who just go up to Mount Rubidoux on their hikes and have made it part of their landscape, right? And this beautiful experience going up there and coming back down. But I think um, there's, I mean, that the, the, 
the history there on Mount Rubidoux is so layered, right? So that um, on one end, um, few people, I would say the vast majority, are unaware that that is a sacred site uh, for Kawia people. Uh, I know that traditionally there was a village built, uh, you know, at the foot of Mount Rubidoux because it was that much of a significant place that there there needed to be a residence there. Um, so few people know that. So they don't know that even by hiking up Mount Rubidoux is our, you know, could be, I don't want to speak for Kauia people, but I know within my community history, uh, our creation mountain uh, was made a tourist site that does have uh, tourists there, hikers, people taking selfies, and they don't even understand that in trying to have this experience with nature, perhaps with the indigenous history, they're actually desecrating a very sacred space for indigenous communities. Um, so I, I don't think people go up Mount Rubidoux with that understanding, um, with any sense of veneration to that space as, as a place of significance. Um, and then you look obviously at the, the more recent history of the cross and how it came to be. Um, you know, you have to understand again, the mission system and the fascination that Frank Miller here with the mission in had with mission iconography, including crosses, uh, president Taft, uh, you know, was a constant visitor here at the Mission Inn and together they bought the property. You know, it got turned over to the city, but then you get this issue of the cross, right? And the separation of church and state. So they parceled out quite literally uh, the land uh, at the foot of the cross. Um, and, you know, I believe there's um, three different um, owners of that that small space. I think the Mission and Foundation is one. Uh, the Rivers and Land Conservancy is another one. And it's interesting because on the social media, the Rivers and Land Conservancy, they put out a statement pretty much saying, um, you know, while we are sad that this happened, um, you know, we want to engage the larger conversation that's happening right now. Um, which is the significance and the layered history on that space. So I think, um, you know, when we look at monuments, that indigenous voice has to be critical to the decolonizing of the spaces and the monuments. Uh, it just, it's, it's something that's where the conversation needs to begin, I think. I think it's important to think about what is the context of this conversation? And as I heard you review the ways that different parties feel about what happened here in Riverside, I can imagine that similar conversations are happening all over the United States. Mm -hmm. So that when a general, Robert Lee, his statue is torn down, there's communities speaking, like you and I are speaking, about the significance and how one person feels empowered in tearing down because their voice is now there, right. while another community is feeling a sense of loss. Mm -hmm. And there's not much of a dialogue, I think, between these parties. Right, so I think uh, I think that's a big gap in what's happening. So we're seeing some, some pretty big extremes here, right? Uh, they're not in conversation, they're not interested. It, it's a really um, 
deafening kind of divide, right? So addressing that loss that you mentioned is super critical because I think for a lot of, um, you know, people of color and marginalized communities and community members, there's been this long process of getting to where people are at right now, which is I'm ready to reclaim my history. I'm ready to reclaim this space. I'm, I'm ready to feel represented wherever I go. I should be able to see myself and other people in equitable spaces. And then you get the other side, which is like, well, I feel like you just tore my soul out of me. Um, if I don't have this and, you know, everything that's pretty much supposed to represent white supremacy, um, then they get left with this emptiness. And there are very few alternatives and images of, um, and again, this is where race, I'm going off tangent a bit, but this is where race is super important, right? Because we have to talk about not just white people as in white bodies, but we really need to start having a discussion about dismantling whiteness. And that has to do with dismantling privilege and it's completely institutional and systemic. It's very large, it's layered, it's gonna be a very long time. Um, but I think that's critical to address that loss. And what do you replace it with? So if it's not the, because white bodies, white people are, you know, they don't have to look at these Confederate generals and say, that's my history. There has to be, there has to be other stories of white people. And that can even go even further, right? So there could be recent European people there should be empowered uh, narratives of people that came from Europe here um, that should be able to um, uh, really deconstruct that whiteness and be able to share space with other people of color as well. But you do have to address that loss and you do have to fill it up with something else. It also helps to consider the way that our sense of defining our 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 communities in the racialized context are products of the infrastructure in which we are raised. So that these monuments, as you referenced, play a very key role in history telling, mm -hmm. in the narrations we tell about ourselves. And I'm going to connect it here with the concept of whiteness as this historically well-documented process of becoming mm -hmm. so that we see people such as the Irish community that early on were denied whiteness. Right. Mm -hmm. But through a process of assimilation and accepting these monuments that were not theirs. You know, so if you think about this Irish community that enters the South and sees these generals that have very disconnected histories. Mm -hmm. They might have been anti-Irish, actually, very blunt, thinking about the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant perspective of Ireland as a very dirty, backwards, uncivilized, and these are the words they use to really um, exploit that community and Correct. hurt them. But give them a couple generations and they will forget, and they will take on that same monument of violence and defend it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's happening here is that, as you mentioned, there is a loss, a sense of loss because there has been an investment in supporting it. And what I've been hearing more recently has to do with, from a, histor um, a historian perspective, that 
there's danger in erasing these monuments or trying to uh, dismantle them mm-hmm. because they equate that to the burning of books. And I, I want to be clear that I'm only paraphrasing what I've heard because I feel that there may be some credit in that perspective, but I feel that there's a difference here. And, and I'd like to just express some of it and let me hear your thoughts on that perspective. Because when I think about these monuments, and it, it is specifically monuments like Mount Rushmore, for example, yes. throughout the Americas, North and South America, the colonizing experience was about dismantling things that were sacred and replacing them with the colonizing bodies representation the king and queen stamp the religious iconography an actual church first you would dismantle the temples of the native communities and put a a church on top on the very mountain that once we went up to now we're going to find an actual church there i feel that that's what happened here so that when when we think about the black hills a sacred a sacred place and you put the faces of these uh, individuals that are, are referenced as heroes to the nation state but to someone else are hostile mm-hmm. invaders it's a way of claiming like I've taken over your land Correct. you mentioned Mount Rubidoux and uh, as a very important place for native communities where you're going to put a stamp of a religious iconography a symbol a cross on that very top point to signal now we're in charge and these conversations are the ones that don't sound uh, easy to accept to someone that has invested in these things, but I feel that they will argue and tell us you can't just erase history. Mm-hmm. You can't just burn the books if you don't like what they say. Mm-hmm. But I feel that it's not the same, and I'm not sure how to express is there something different in what's happening here that is not equal to burning books? I think we're speaking within the context in the United States, but I was also quickly reminded uh, in Mexico how they would build the churches on top of uh, sacred ceremonial sites, pyramids, and quite literally they would leave glass viewing so that you would be standing in the church and you'd look down instead of seeing just, you know, tile or whatnot. You can actually see the pyramid down below and what um what a, a vivid way of right of being able to uh talk about these histories of conquering right um okay so now I'll go back to your other question about um you know being equivalent to uh, burning the books i don't think it's the same um so that these monuments are not literally going to get burned but they will likely go down to the storage um, and they will likely be preserved to talk about this moment where the monuments had to come down, but there will be a new narrative to be told. And I think that's really the beauty about public history and public uh, memory, right? It's, It's, these are contested histories. They are not set in stone and every generation, that's how memory works. Uh, you choose to remember what is of value to you that you're going to carry into the future. And you you are going to reshape narratives to represent the future that you want. And that is something that is very 
innate to being human um, so that we only have one lifetime and we have to choose from our parents' generation of what we choose to remember to our children, right? Even if we look at our grandparents, how much do we know about their personal histories and how all of these conversations really intersect with larger political economic uh, systems? We know very little but that whatever we know, we can say that they've chosen to pass down. Um, and so I think within that, that same light, we're looking at um, monuments. When they come down, they are going to have a narrative of why they came down. Um, but no, I, I don't think, um, I don't think uh, it's the same as, you know, burning of like sacred texts, for example, you know as what happened, um, you know, with, for example, indigenous people in Mexico, right? They were burning all these sacred texts. I don't think it's the same thing um, because the reality is these monuments, as I mentioned, they're, they're expressions, they're statements, and they're uh, exercises of power, and that's what's being contested right now. Um, I don't think Robert Lee is going to disappear out of the history books. Absolutely not. I wonder if it's easier to not accept but understand what is happening when it's articulated in kind of legal doctrine so that one is that the conversation of, of the cross that you referenced in Mount Ruby Dew in Riverside was problematic for one of the reasons that it was a public park a government space and governments in the United States are not supposed to be involved with religion. Correct, yes. And one of the ways that they were able to kind of work around that was by literally working around the land and creating like a little donut and they created a little island that was not going to be government or public uh, land and privatize it that now makes more sense why it's harder to challenge the existence of a cross on a public park because it's technically not on the public park and it's also now sensical to consider why the city of los angeles found itself in trouble with like having junipero cera uh, in in a space that is quasi public like the placita alvera Mm -hmm. But how do we make sense when we think about these monuments as obviously able to be to be public because they are supported by the government, like local government or national government? But there, it's really about the issue of displaying something for everyone to see, mm-hmm. and the power that you mentioned that that has. Because when I think about the the Confederate flag. I think it there's there's still a few people that do not see it as a racist symbol. There's a few people that are, are committed to saying that all they are trying to say is that this is part of history and they appreciate it. But for a lot of people, that's a, a, a source of intimidation and violence, so we see that. But if it's in someone's lawn, you you don't challenge it. You get upset. You maybe you talk to them, that's offensive, but if you try and take it down, you it would be hugely inappropriate because that's their property. 
But when we talk about this conversation about communities contesting public spaces, I wonder if there's a space to talk about what we said earlier, that these public spaces give permission to challenge the presence and display, even though it's done in a way that most people or some people find it inappropriate. They would say, you should not go up there and bring down that flag. As we saw in, in Virginia, mm -hmm. there was a person that climbed up the flagpole and brought that flag down. Right. And she was fined. She was arrested and fined. Then we're told, you can't do that. You should go to the city, file a grievance. Maybe we'll have a, a vote. But I'm thinking about the ways that we didn't have a vote to put them up. I'm just wondering if there's a conversation about agency. And even though it feels, I don't know, um, more dramatic to actually get, you know, 30 people to, to bring down a statue. And, and you see the pictures, everyone cheering. It's not necessarily an end point because those statues could be put back up mm -hmm. later on. So I wonder if, if we can talk a little bit about agency, the fact that like the way that the community is responding is because they have been forced to respond this way because the alternative wasn't available. So I think you bring up a really good point about legal avenues and um, pretty much have been historically speaking at least dead ends right so that nominating um a site uh monument um or for it to be considered um you know a protected place or whatnot takes anywhere from like five to 15 years it takes lawyers to be able to erect a monument um the Bear Ears Monument, uh, you know, out here in the desert, and Trump's already trying to uh, uh, revoke the nomination. So, it, right, again, they're exercises of power. And I think when we talk about legal avenues, I think it's really important to talk about land and settlement because I think that is at the core of what we are discussing when we talk about race relations, um, and especially with indigeneity. So when we look at Mount Rubidoux, we look at the cross. Um, let's say the three, um, you know, uh, proprietary owners of the actual cross, or maybe even the whole Mount Rubidoux by the city of Riverside, takes an approach of reconciliation and says, let's speak to the indigenous community. We've understood it's a sacred site. Let's see what we can do. Um, and then let's say, I don't know, uh, Serrano people from San Manuel, Kauia people, maybe some Tongva people say, uh, give us back the land. Oh, now you get into some serious issues, right? Because they won't give it to you um it's it's so it's almost and that's kind of the limitations of um of this debate of uh the symbolic nature of of monuments so that uh, the legal avenues have been dead ends um and they've only been symbolic so what if you take it even further and and push back and say actually if you are sincere 
uh, and wanting to, um, you know, take a decolonial uh, approach uh, to Mount Rubidoux and the cross, give us back our land so that maybe we could um, practice our ceremonies the way we did, as we did before. However, we put the parameters. Uh, we don't want hikers up there. I know I don't want hikers up my creation mountain. I know I don't want people taking selfies in that way. And then you get into just, I think, inconceivable um, uh, inconceivable kind of uh, reconciliation. But uh, to me, I think when we look at uh, decolonizing and really unlayering all these different histories and what is the direction that people want to take, um, I think that's definitely one approach. But even within the agency of, you know, people taking it upon themselves to... Um, uh, to tear down the the monuments, it, it's still important because one of the things I've seen is, for example, the state capitol, they decided to remove the Christopher Columbus statue and pretty much beat all the protesters to the punch because they're at minimum trying to um, have less exposure, right? And some semblance of saving face and, you know, by way of initiation. Um but I think it's definitely a good movement. I think it's a good momentum. I think it's, it's you know, it, it's not just this generation. I think it's been this slow progress of, um, well, one, this generation of youth is amazing, you know. But I think it's been building. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know if it's the pandemic. You know, I don't know if it's all these murders of literally black people, you know, police brutality. I don't know what it is. It could be everything. Uh, but there is definitely a huge historical fatigue. We're quarantined. And, um, you know, I think uh, there's something really significant. I don't quite know how to articulate it yet, you know, because we're all still in quarantine. Um, but there is something very significant about where we're at right now. Well, Daisy, I want to thank you for sharing your time with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You've just finished hearing a conversation with historian Daisy Ocampo. We had an opportunity to share our thoughts regarding the removal of Confederate soldiers, other figures such as Christopher Columbus, Junipero Serra, and also the local challenge of the cross on top of Mount Rubidoux. We shared our thoughts regarding the ways that these monuments convey national stories but also symbolically as monuments that are placed in a public space, create a context where certain stories are hidden, buried even. For every monument that is placed on top of a hill, there's a story of the sacredness of that hill. As we see people challenging the placement of these statutes, I think it's important to think about the ways that it's not simply about the material representation, but the ways that these monuments express a long history of erasing other people's histories. And if anything can come out of this moment, we can recognize that we're in a position to have dialogue, to talk about it, and hopefully result in the inclusion of voices that were previously silenced. I hope you found this conversation interesting and relevant and take it upon your respective circles to continue.
please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, or any feedback you may have to the following email. Comments at dereport.org. You can also check out our website, dereport.org, to review past segments. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Daniel, the Dew Report, here on KUCR 88.3 FM. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.